morning comes from Philippians 2, Philippians 2, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Good morning. Oh, it works. I'm terrified of these wireless mics just because they're always on you. But I was told I could trust the sound engineer, and that proved to be true. Uh, my name is Josue Pernillo. Uh I am a licensed in the Presbytery of Northern Illinois, which if you don't know what that means, it just means I took a bunch of exams and met with the Presbytery, and they deemed it not heretical when I preach. So it's like I have a license to preach in the Presbytery's churches in the Presbytery of Northern Illinois. Actually, this September 9th meeting, I am going up for my ordination exams, so I would very much appreciate your prayers. Um, for that. So if you don't know what that is, is I just stand in front of everybody again and be questioned. So all the elders, teaching elders and ruling elders in our presbytery, and they can ask me about anything. And so I'm very nervous, but it's okay. We trust in the Lord. Uh, I'll pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can gather here. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that we could come and worship you, you who are good and true. And we look to you. Lord, help me as I preach, make my tongue the pen of a ready writer, that I may confess the glories of the King. So we look to you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Today we are looking at Philippians, but there's a question that I wanted to ask everybody before we really get into it, and that is, what is the most intense disagreement that you have had with someone? What is the most intense disagreement that you have had with someone? Um... It is an important question to consider, not only what the disagreement was about, but what the interaction was like when you disagreed. Different people are different. Some people raise their voices, others offer a cold shoulder. Uh, Some people walk away, some people don't drop things, you know what I'm talking about. Depending on who you are, what is the most intense disagreement that you have had? Divisions and disagreements are a part of our world. We live in a divided world. It feels at times that it is politically advantageous and fiscally profitable to be divided. You sell on division. It is easy to find things to divide over in our world. Reasons to fight, molehills to elevate, chasms to seek. We can argue about the government, the best place to get breakfast, whether Android or Apple is best whether it's a Chevy or a Ford, and things like that. I have a Toyota, I'm sorry. It's the mouths to the gallon that get me. But how should we as Christians approach disagreements? And what's the attitude that we should have with one another when we do reach them? This week, we're looking at the letter to the Philippians. The letter, which is one of my favorite letters, if you can say that about any of the letters, contains many beautiful themes, such as joy, Christology, eschatology, living with a gospel mindset, friendship, humility, and the topic of today's sermon, unity. 
Today's passage, we engage with that one of the most beautiful themes, unity and humility. The Philippian church is in the midst of both internal tensions and external pressures. They are facing pressures from the outside, which is what Paul dealt with in verses in chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. And now he shifts focus in chapter 2 to deal with their internal tensions. Paul, in his letter, begins to address these concerns by aiming to encourage them and, and exhort them in the manner in which they should face their struggles. And we will see that the appeal of the seasoned apostle to those in his care is to maintain peace and unity in the midst of disagreements and internal tensions. And what we will see is that because of the encouragement that we have in Christ and in the gospel, we can not only have unity, but experience unity and what that means. And we'll explore that in three points. Like any good sermon, there's three points. First, the gospel source of unity. Second, the gospel experience of unity. And third, the gospel reaction to unity. So first, the gospel source of unity. And if you could look with me to Philippians 2, verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. The passage begins by explaining the encouragement and comfort that a Christian has in Christ. The first verse is a series of four if statements. If any encouragement, if any comfort, if any participation, if any affection. These four statements serve as a beautiful way to describe the benefits that a Christian has in Christ. It is not clear on the amount that they experience that, but what is clear is that they do experience it. The question is, if not, if you have this level of encouragement, or this level of affection, or this level of sympathy, rather, Paul's stance is, if you have any of these in any measure, why? Because Paul is reminding the Philippian believers of what they have in Christ. For example, to those who are being persecuted, which we dealt with in chapter 1, they have the encouragement in Christ. To those that are disheartened, they have the comfort and the love of Christ. To those that are lonely and feel isolated, they are reminded of the participation that they have in the Spirit and with one another. And to those same, the affection and sympathies that they find in Jesus. Paul reminds the Christians at Philippi of those benefits and the benefits that are received to those who are in Christ. In a manner, he is reminding them of the objective truth which shapes their lives as Christians. And this serves as an invitation for reflection. Paul is brilliant. Here is is the inspired word. But before he gets to the command... Before he gets to the challenge, the seasoned apostle invites a pause and says, in the midst of the messiness of life, of the opposition that you face, do you have any encouragement, any comfort, any participation, and any sympathy in Christ? He reminds them that they are united to Christ even in the midst of trouble. The Philippians have been united to Christ And they are encouraged and strengthened in Him. Jesus is the source. And it is this that will serve as the basis on which He will call them to unity. 
Here the source of unity is established. It is Christ himself. He is which fuels both their unity in essence and in experience. The engine which drives the whole enterprise forward. By establishing Jesus as the source, he lays the foundation for the challenge he's about to present. Because Paul is about to challenge them that not only should they strive together in the midst of external pressures, but in humility be united in the midst of internal tensions. That there are those things from the outside which threaten to destroy the church, but there are also things which threaten to tear the church apart from the inside. The source of unity the church can have internally, the reason why we're united, is Christ himself. They are united to Christ, and in that sense, especially in the letters of Philippians, they're united to each other. Jesus is the one who encourages, comforts. In him we participate, and in him we experience sympathy. And in that manner, we can also experience those things within the church and with each other. He will proceed to explain that because of the encouragement that we have in Christ, we can experience unity. But Jesus is the source. I am the youngest of three siblings, which means one thing. I do all the housework. When I was a kid, my sister would lay down and watch TV, and she would make me go get her water and sweep. I broke my leg, and I was bound to a wheelchair for six months. I still got her water, and I still swept the house, and I still washed the dishes. And I would get frustrated, especially now that I've gotten older. And I ask, and I start arguing. Why, I'm always the one washing the dishes. Like, I'm older now. But even in her house, I, like, visit, and I'm like, start washing the dishes just that I have it. And when I would get really frustrated, especially around high school, I would tell my mom, I'd be like, this, it's unfair. It is unfair how much I have to do for my siblings. And she would just say, you don't wash the dishes because you have to. You do it because we're a family. And we all carry a little bit for each other. Right? Your sister helps you with your clothes. Because it's easy for me to forget that. Why is it that we are united? What is it that brings us together here? Although as we continue in this sermon, and we talk about what unity looks like, it is of great importance to take a second and think about why we are united. If you do not know why you do something, the action will eventually fall apart. The passage today begins in an important place. Why should we aim for unity? Why should we, for a lack of a better term, put up with each other, even when we drive each other up the wall? I learned that term this morning. I was driving up someone up the wall, I guess. Um, the why of all the things we do is because we have been reconciled to God. We may not share the same ethnic background, musical preference, childhood experience. We might not like the same food or music. But there is a blessed tie that binds us. There is something that brings us as Christians together. And that is Jesus. We will continue by describing the experience of unity. But before we get there, let us pause and reflect on those benefits that here in Christ's church we receive by being in his church and in Christ. If you have received any encouragement, 
any comfort, any participation in the Spirit, and any affection and sympathy. That is why we do things, even if we're different. Second, the gospel experience of unity. So please turn to me to Philippians 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So we've discussed why they are united, or why Paul begins his argument with that. Now we will discuss what unity looks like and what that experience in a way feels like or seems like. He asks them at the beginning of verse 2 to complete his joy. Which if you've read Philippians, you know Philippians is about joy. It's what helped paint the whole letter. Here, he uses it as a friend writing to his friends. In the letter of Philippians, more than any other epistle, you get a sense of Paul's intimate friendship, of his care for the people that he's writing to, of his concern for them, of his love for them. And he begins his appeal by saying this, Make my joy complete by being of one mind. It is a personal appeal that he now brings to them of their unity. And he frames this appeal to unity in a particular way. He begins and ends this verse by saying, being of the same mind, and then he says it again, being of one mind. And this actually will help us serve as the framework for unity. And so we're going to sit on this for a little bit and explain it further. This verb, which is to think or mind, depending on how you translate it, is used is one of Paul's favorite verbs to use, and in this particular letter is used about eight times. The word that's being used here, to think, can have three basic meanings. First, it means to have an opinion with regard to something. Second, it can mean to give careful consideration to something. And third, it's to develop a thought based on careful thought. The appeal here is being one of careful consideration. In the letter to the Philippians, this verb takes a particular relational aspect. For example, in Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It can also be translated, Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 4, verse 2, Paul is making an appeal to two people in the church that are arguing. And he says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Sinanthi to agree in the Lord. That word right there, agree, some versions translate as to have the same mind in the Lord. What Paul is doing when he brings this being of one mind and having the same mind is not just saying that we cognitively agree in the same things, although we should, Right? It is not just making a theological argument. Because in verse 5 when he says, Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus, what follows is describing the humility of Christ in the way that he considered himself and others. What Paul is saying is, what frames our unity, what gives it its sort of... um, Framing, I'm using the word frame a lot, but I couldn't come up with anything else on the spot, is this. The way that you think about each other. The way that you consider each other. Because even close friends can be pulled apart by disagreement. 
Paul understands that and appeals to his friends to come to terms with one another. He is not just telling the Philippians to not think and agree with whatever another person says. That's usually never in the Bible. Rather, he is telling them to have an attitude of mind that gives careful consideration to the other person. It is not just a description of what we believe, but the way that mind and thinking is being used here is the general attitude that we have with one another and how that is reflective of what we see in Jesus Christ. The Philippians, especially in this letter, are having some sort of conflict. It's throughout the whole letter. The conflict is never made clear. It could be as they are facing external pressures, there has arisen an internal division as people react to the outside force. It could be a doctrinal disagreement or even a personal disagreement about a certain practice or idea. Paul does not clarify, but he challenges them to carefully consider the other person. There are other parts in the Bible which help us address what we do when people are saying the wrong thing. But in this text, what is being emphasized is how we treat each other when we disagree. How is it that you think through what another person is saying? Paul is not saying that we should just become copies of each other, regurgitating what another person has thought deeply about. Rather, he is saying that when you have a disagreement, consider the person. He does not ignore the fact that they have a conflict. He doesn't just command them to squash the beef. He calls them to come to term with one another. The appeal here is to a general attitude towards one another that when you have disagreements, you have this mind which was in Christ Jesus. That attitude of humility is what's being emphasized. And that's in verses 3 and 4 as well. The verse, especially verse 2, is like a sandwich. The bread of the sandwich is the challenge of the mind, right? Have this mind, be of the same mind. The meat and the cheese is having the same love, or if you prefer turkey and pesto, is having the same love and being of full accord. Love is emphasizing the general affections that we should have towards one another, being one of compassion and sympathy. It's not just a mere intellectual exercise that Paul is appealing to. It does not mean that we do not engage our minds. We certainly do. But the opportunities to love one another in the midst of disagreement, since Christ is our source of unity, and that overflows both in our actions, our attitudes, and our hearts towards one another. Being of the same accord can otherwise be translated into having the same goals and purpose. It is not just their minds which must be engaged, but also their hearts and their hands. The way that they consider one another in the midst of arguments overflows into the love that they show one another and the goals that they have together as the church of Christ. Since Christ is their source of unity, the Philippians are called to practice unity with each other, especially when they have disagreements. To be willing to consider the other person, to be willing to love one another in the midst of those arguments and disagreements, and to move towards a common goal as they discuss those things as much as it is possible. But because of the gospel, they are called to experience unity even in the midst of tensions. And that is not an appeal 
to supplant what we think or what we believe. Because even in the scriptures it says, when somebody's wrong, to gently correct them. It is about the attitude that we have towards one another in the midst of disagreements. That's where you see unity. There's a phrase that I heard growing up. It is, a soldier is not made in the academy, it's made in the battle. And the truth of the matter is, you don't see unity when we all agree about everything. You see it when we disagree. What is it that brings us together? Because if it is Jesus, then our appeal is to have an attitude towards one another of a peacemaker. I think it is helpful to understand that Paul is not saying that we should lose all individual autonomy. And even if we disagree, to pretend that we don't, to maintain a sense of harmony with another person or groups of people. Our calling as a Christian is not to ignore disagreements or to pretend that there are no problems. Our calling as Christians is not to have uniformity in the sense that we agree on every little thing from the color of the carpet to the best hires to buy. Rather, our calling as a Christian is to strive for unity when we do have disagreements in our attitude towards one another and the manner in which we handle the things in which we disagree. The Christian attitude and disposition is that of a peacemaker, someone who strives for unity and reconciliation whenever it is possible. There can be many things that can cause divisions and tensions between groups of people, whether it's a personal offense, a perceived disagreement, different personalities, conflicting goals and interests. It's not just theological disagreements that we should have in mind, although those happen. But I know Mark and I know the teaching that happens in this church. And it's wonderful. I just, I really love Mark and I miss him. I wish he was here. But there are certainly conflicts within even this church between people for various reasons. The calling of the Christian is to address those things in a gracious and gentle manner. You today may have been offended. You may disagree. You may be unsure about certain approaches or practices. But even if that is the case, in the midst of that conflict, the call of the Christian is to aim as best as it is to their ability to reconcile, to come and discuss these things. If you are offended, it is okay to go and express the offense. If you disagree, it is okay to go and express that disagreement. If you have questions about the things that are done, it is okay to say those things. But it is the attitude of gentleness and graciousness that matters. It is that attitude that Paul is appealing to. Um, I know as a guest preacher, I probably shouldn't come and say, if you have a problem, just go to the elders. And I'm not just saying that. What I'm saying is, the calling of a Christian is to address when there are disagreements and the attitude that we have in the midst of those disagreements. We should approach things with humility. Unity is not shown when we all agree on the same thing, but in the way that we treat each other when we do disagree. The respect and graciousness that we show one another. Unity is shown when you discuss even hard things 
to try to understand the other person better. And even to say when you think the other person might be wrong. And it sometimes means that you also have to admit when you're wrong. And I'm wrong often. It is not just a theological argument about which point is the most internally consistent, although it can be that. The experience of unity that we have because of the gospel is the attitude that different people treat with each other in the midst of disagreements. So the first is the source of our unity. The second is the experience of that unity. And third, the gospel reaction to that unity. Look with me to Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if Christ is our source of unity, and that source of unity overflows within our hearts to our experience of unity, the seasoned apostle now begins to explain those things which help or harms our actual unity. We look at verses 3 through 4. He is comparing contrary ideas. In verse 3, he shows the attitude of someone who harms unity. In verse 4, he appeals to an attitude towards a Christian which helps unity. And these two verses help elaborate that idea of the mind or attitude which we are called to have in Christ Jesus. So we'll handle them one at a time. But the point that Paul is making in these two verses is to call the Philippians to give of themselves for the sake of another. First, he calls them to avoid something. He calls them to avoid selfish ambition and vain conceit. That's verse 3. Selfish ambition is the sort of quarreling attitude that Paul had warned about in Philippians 1-17, through which was evident in those who opposed Paul. There were those in Rome, where Paul was most likely in prison, that were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition in order to gain. Here, Paul brings back the word and warns the Philippian church, do not be those that do things out of selfish ambition. It is not only a desire to fight and argue, but also that they did so out of an inappropriate motive. Their motive is further emphasized by the word vain conceit, which is a combination of two words. It simply means empty glory. He is warning them of the selfish ambition of imposing themselves on another person and their desires on another person because they want empty glory. They just want to glorify themselves. So to maintain a sense of control, they force others to do what they think is appropriate. To exalt themselves over others for their own glory. He is warning them of those who impose themselves for their own sake. He looks at them and he says, do not be this way. He elaborates on that further when he further clarifies in verse 4 by saying, let each of you not look only to your own interests, which is an important qualifier. It doesn't mean that you don't look to your interests, but you don't only look to your own interests. You should not be completely preoccupied primarily with yourself. To consider your opinions the most interesting, what is happening to you the most important, your problems to be the most difficult, your achievements to be the most victorious. So if Paul warns them against this sort of attitude that does things out of a desire to glorify themselves, what does he call them to? Paul says, in humility, consider others 
greater than yourself. The humility here is described as a preoccupation with another. It is for the sake of another, but something has to be clarified. Paul calls them to give of themselves for the sake of another, but not to diminish and destroy themselves for the sake of another. There is an issue with imposing yourself on others, but there is also an issue with having no opinion, no interest, and no desire. Paul is not calling them to a complete destruction of their individuality and just to function within the machinery of a church. Humility is not putting yourself down or denying the fact that you're a person with needs and thoughts. Humility is rather a preoccupation with another. It is of giving of self for the sake of another. If selfish ambition tempts our motives to do things for our own glory, humility calls us to give of ourselves for the sake of other people. And that is the key. Paul challenges them not to give of themselves. And in verse 4, like we talked about, it says, look not only, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Caring for others does not mean we don't have interests or desires or questions. Rather, it is the attitude of mind that puts others first. It is this putting others first where we deeply experience unity. And it is because of the encouragement that we have in Christ that we can experience this sort of self-giving but not self-destroying unity. This is the best example I can think of. If it's not good, please come up to me afterwards and tell me. But this is the best I could come up with. There's, I love having fried chicken for Sunday dinner. As anybody should. I know it's not good for me, but once a week I think it's okay. So let's say you had a long week. And it was hard. And you go and you come together to the table with your family, whoever that may be, or your friends or your roommates... And you're having the best fried chicken in Peoria, wherever that may be. And everybody knows, with chicken dinners, there's always the best piece of chicken. I don't know what it is in your family, but for us it's the thigh. The thigh is the best piece of fried chicken. I don't know what it is. Some people like the legs. I'm not here to argue about that. And you've had a long week. And somebody at the table has had a longer week. Looking to the interest of others is looking at that piece of chicken And knowing that you want it. And putting it on that other person's plate. And at the same time, it is the following week, when you've had an even longer week, somebody puts that piece of chicken on your plate. It is that attitude within the church that puts the interests of others first. It is not just one that takes and strives and denies others, but one that is giving. And gracious and gentle. And to those that need we give. Because we all need at times. There are different types of people in church. With different personalities. These verses do not only help us answer. Why we have to come together. But also how to come together. This passage frees us from becoming bulldozers and doormats. We should not be bulldozers that impose our opinion. By clear or indirect ways. We cannot always have our way. We are not always right. We do not always know what is best. There are things which you and me are not experts. Every idea that comes out of our heads is not golden. 
We don't always know the best restaurant to eat. We don't always know who should do the dishes. We're not the only person that knows how to load the dishwasher. We are not experts at everything. And we should not be the ones that make decisions about everything. We are a body and a church that works together. That means that different people have different skills and strengths. It does not mean that you cannot share your opinion, but it honestly means that everybody here can be wrong. Part of what is beautiful about being a church family is that we learn about each other's strengths and about each other's weaknesses. And we do not have to force our own way and not do things out of selfish ambition or vain glory, but to look to the strengths of others. Consider another's opinion and approach and admit when you are wrong. It also means that we should not be doormats. You can share your desires and opinions. God made each and every one of us with specific gifts and skills. Being humble is not a destruction of our autonomy or of individuality. Considering another's interests is not thinking that you are nothing. We are all, all of us, fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And this church is made better and fuller because God in His sovereignty brought us together. God called us and you to be a part of the body. And we need the body to share not only what you think, but why you think it's important. We are not just a wheel and a cog. We are not just a part of the machine. You're not just a part of the whole. There's a poem that I love. And it says this, In the field, I am the absence of the field. This is always the case wherever I am. I am what is missing. Which is, I know what you're thinking. It's pretty cheesy. But I like it. Because God made us all. And we all have gifts and skills. And God in His grace brought you to this church. And that is a good thing. Humility is not a destruction of yourself. But it is the giving of yourself for the sake of another. You are a person and you need to give of yourself. Every person here has skills and gifts. And there is a wonderful beauty in learning those gifts and serving others. You do not need to be a doormat. You have opinions and thoughts and it's okay to say them. And as we all serve each other, and in gentleness and graciousness grow, we will slowly but surely mature and love God more. Everyone has different gifts. Christ is the source of our unity. He is what brings us together, whether in Peoria or in Champaign. Our purpose and direction in life is found in Him. Because Christ is a source, we can experience a sort of relationships when even in the midst of conflict, we consider another person's interests. And we are called to mature in those relationships by putting another person's interests before our own. It is because Jesus is our encouragement. Because He is our source of sympathy and comfort that we can do this. There is a hymn that I love. I actually didn't grow up singing hymns. And so by the time I found them in college, I just, I've loved them ever since. And this is what the hymn says. And this is how we'll end. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like that to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers our fears, 
Our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share each other's woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. This glorious hope revives our courage by the way, while each in expectation lives and longs to see the day. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin we shall be free, and perfect love and friendship reign through all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can gather here. Thank you that you are the one that brings us together. Help us, Lord, to come to terms with one another, to speak the things and into things which are hard and to disagreements that we may have. But we thank you for your blood, that which reconciles us to our Heavenly Father and to you. Thank you for your sacrifice and that attitude that you had towards your own enemies who were us. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Help us to come together to share our gifts and to be strengthened in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.